please join me in Romans chapter 6. It will be my objective to finish this chapter this morning, so we'll be looking at verse 19 down through verse 23, but I'd like to begin back at verse 15, reading through the end of the chapter. Paul writes, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be, he writes. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as a slave for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together before we begin our study. Father, we do come humbly before you, recognizing that your word is truth. And it is through the word of your truth that you have chosen to sanctify your people in whom your spirit now indwells. We are grateful for the spirit. We give thanks as well for the written word. And we pray that our time together under the ministry of your spirit will be profitable as we give our thoughts, as we give our praises, our gratitude, and our worship to you. Please speak to us now through your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. A little bit of background that most of you married people know, but um, my wife and I often jest about certain things in our relationship where in our communications with one another, one of us, predominantly Debbie, will speak to me as if I'm a child. Um, And we kind of kid each other about this, but usually it becomes necessary because I'm stubborn enough that I'm not listening to her, so she has to start speaking in five-year-old language to, to penetrate my, my hardened thoughts, I guess. And I know that all of you have been in that position where somebody has spoken to you as a child. You don't necessarily like it when it's not done in jest um, because it makes us feel, not, no offense to our five-year-olds this morning, but none of us as adults want to be treated like a five-year-old or be talked to as if we are a child. But again, sometimes it is necessary because of the stubbornness of our thoughts or we want to hold to our own position and we're not willing to listen to reason. Um, The language here in Romans chapter 6, though it's not speaking to us as children, it's using language that is and can be offensive to some, especially to the unbeliever. If we were to be preaching this to the unsaved, the language of slavery is offensive. And it will be taken as offensive if we're talking to the world and saying, you're nothing more than a slave to your sin. It is the truth, 
but it is nonetheless a festive language. And yet that's the language that Paul has chosen to use to speak to us about the subject, speak to Christians, the church, about the subject of grace and sin. We've already noted that twice as Paul has brought up the question, because we're a people under grace, does that mean we can be careless about sin? Verse 1 And again, here in the second half of chapter 6, in verse 15, he starts out that way, letting us know what we already know about ourselves. We do struggle with sin. Even though we are under the reign of grace, we still dabble with sin. And we can can sometimes minimize sin. We can ignore it. We can neglect it. We can treat it as if, well, grace is going to cover anyway. So how about just doing what I want to do for that moment? We have all been there. We live there. So what does Paul do? He uses offensive language, and he's saying this is how it is. There are two paths in this world. We're going to talk about those two paths again. Paul's been talking about it for six chapters. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to obedience. There's only two. We may not like to be treated like a child, but we hate the idea that we're not the master of our own identity. We're not the master of our own future. We're not the master of own destiny. But the reality of what Paul is saying here is that there is no man or woman on God's green earth that is autonomous. None of us are. We are under the control of one of two masters, and there is no neutral territory. Either we are enslaved to sin, which results in death, or we are enslaved to obedience in Christ Jesus, which results in righteousness. Chapter 6 has been addressing the false thinking that because Christians are saved by grace alone, that sin is no longer a big deal with us. Paul has posed this error in two very similar questions. Again, verse 1 and verse 15. And the very point of God's saving grace is to rescue us out of the life of sin, the bondage, the master sin that we were once under or enslaved to. And not only that, believers have been saved from sin's condemnation or God's eternal judgment. Those two thoughts will be in our minds as we continue through our text this morning. Why have we been saved? What is the gospel about? The great rescue of the sinner was accomplished as the spirit of the believer is raised up by God to walk in the likeness of Christ in the newness of life, as Paul has taught in the first half of this chapter. But we are also, as believers, cautioned that so long as we are in this body of flesh, our physical bodies, we can still yield the members of our body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Yet, the salvation found in Christ sets the spirit of the believer free from bondage. Spiritually, we've been raised up in Christ. We are no longer a slave to sin spiritually. The second half of chapter 6 continues to confront Christians with the error of having a casual view of sin because we are under grace and not under law. In our last study, verses 15 to 18, it gave us a description of sinners being taken out from under the law that cannot keep us or bring us to salvation. Resulting in obedience to the righteousness of Christ, the grace of God is entered in. As Paul makes clear, we are not under law regarding our salvation. We're not under law regarding justification, meaning that our obedience to try to keep 
God's law can never merit our salvation since no one is able to keep God's law. And therefore, we are saved by God's grace alone through the work of his Son alone who atoned for the sins of his people on the cross. Believers are justified then by grace apart from the works of the law. That's the point he makes here in the second half of chapter 6. We're moving now to the, the, the second part of the second half of chapter 6, from lawless to sanctification. From lawless to sanctification. In the first part of that series, last or two weeks ago, we discussed taking, being taken from law to grace. Now Paul is going to talk about our sanctification, taking us from lawlessness to sancti- being sanctified or holy. This morning we begin then in verse 19 where Paul continues the analogy of slavery to describe the only two masters that all of humanity will kneel in obedience to. Either men submit to sin or they submit to obedience to God in Christ Jesus. And here in the second half of chapter 6, Paul again calls for application. We noted that back in verse 13 and 14. Paul stopped in this discourse, this gospel discourse, to say now some application. Now some practice. Notice in verse 19 he's going to do that again. It's time to stop and consider some application. And the language that he will again develop to help the church understand the importance of his gospel instruction is that of slavery. And slavery in Paul's day was regarded as demeaning towards the slave. So this is not an institution that is honorable. It was dishonorable. The slave was a degraded, demoralized person. Yet this was such a magnificent institution, meaning large, that it was immovable, it was unavoidable in that day. There was nothing the slave could do about it. And a group of ten people weren't going to rise up and put an end to slavery. We think about slavery in this nation's history. It was still a worldwide problem. It wasn't America's problem alone. It was a worldwide problem. Sadly, part of our culture. And it took a civil war to bring it to an end in this nation. But in reading Paul's use of slavery here in Romans 6, it is not hard for you and I to see how that applies to the unsaved person that is under the bondage of sin. But he doesn't stop at that. He continues to apply slavery to believers who are now under the reign of grace. If slavery was such a degrading institution as it is and as it was, why use this as an analogy of our union with Christ? Verse 19 offers an explanation. He's taking that issue, that analogy of slavery that he's been applying to the two paths that humanity are on, and he's going to now offer an explanation by writing, I am speaking using this language in human terms, because of the weakness of your flesh. The weakness of flesh has the same connotation as our body of sin back in verse 6, our mortal body in verse 12, and the members of our body in verse 13. Now I want to make a point here because it is not the physical matter of our bodies that is sinful here. It's not the physical tissue here that is sinful But I'm quoting here from one author who says, it's the faculties of the bodies as dominated, perverted, and misused by sin. 
In other words, this physical body that is dominated, perverted, or misused by sin that the author is talking about here in Romans chapter 6. This is what Paul's getting at. Because if it was the physical matter that was sinful, it would hardly make sense for Paul to say, take your sinful flesh and do what is righteous with that sinful flesh. It wouldn't make sense. As already considered, we are talking about our humanness that is influenced by sin. And so long as we live in these temporal, physical bodies, we will be enticed by desires of our humanness. The weakness of our flesh speaks to the reality that we can still practice sin as those that have been set free from the bondage of sin. Again, spiritually, we have been set free. Physically, we still struggle. So this weakness of our flesh includes our hands and feet that act in sinfulness or wickedness. It is minds that contemplate and devise evil. Ears and eyes that receive information that lures us into sin. And certainly, as James talked about, the tongue, which is a world of iniquity. And it's very hard for us to tame it. It is in Christ that these same members, these physical members, they now can be used as instruments of righteousness. But, Paul warns, fleshly desires and impulses, they're still there. They're still going to be a problem for us. And so we are warned such that these members can give way to sinfulness. Paul uses graphic analogy like slavery to communicate the very contrary contest that exists between the believer's spirit that is no longer under bondage with the body of flesh that still draws us to return to unrighteousness. So the degrading institution of slavery helps to make very clear to the church that sin and grace do not belong together. They do not coexist in peace together. Now at the same time, the description that Paul gives of slavery does not make an equal comparison between the slave of sin and the slave of obedience. It's not an equal comparison. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and maybe we can bring this up on the board if it's there, he refers to slavery under master sin as a totalitarian tyranny of the worst type. There is no freedom there at all. And he continues to write, this is where the analogy breaks down. This is where it's different to say that unsaved people are a slave to sin, but the Christian is a slave to righteousness. This is where the analogy is very different. There's a comparison here, but there are two extremes. And I like the way that Jones goes on to write that we have as believers become a slave to love. We've been drawn into the loving embrace of God, and we love him because he first loved us. We are born again in God's love and in his grace. So it makes our slavery very, very different than the slavery we once knew under master sin. As those reborn by the Spirit, we have the freedom now to walk in righteousness. Yes, we are slaves to righteousness. We are a slave, but it's a slavery of a completely different kind And I hope we see that from our study this morning. From verse 19, let's consider these two slaveries as they have been described. And I've left a couple of blanks so that it helps you follow along with me. In verse 19, to begin with, we consider a slave's power. A slave's power. This is the power to yield in one direction or another. 
Now, from our previous study, we learned that that word to present yourselves means to yield yourself over or to give way to the influence of something else. In the case of those enslaved to sin, it really then is a description of powerlessness or the power of sin over the unsaved individual. They do not have the strength or the spiritual power to walk in righteousness before God. And this is where the analogy of slavery is going to be very offensive to the unbeliever. The gospel declares to the unsaved, you have no ability whatsoever to please God. You can't walk in his righteousness. You can't do anything that merits his favor. The unsaved man or woman has presented or yielded the members of their body as slaves to two things, impurity and lawlessness. Now again, there are blanks on your note sheet. One author points out that impurity identifies, and you can get this down, the inward defilement of sin. Impurity, the inward defilement of sin. While the lawlessness speaks to the outward practice of sin. The impurity of the heart is the inward defilement of sin that does its work on the heart. While lawlessness speaks to the outward practice of sin that that heart motivates. So with hearts that are impure, man actively violates the laws of God. Being a slave to sin in this sense shows man incapable or powerless to please God either inwardly from their hearts or motives or their will or outwardly from their practice or their actions. Further, verse 20 says that this slavery actually keeps the unsaved separate from the power of divine righteousness. That's what is implied in verse 20. When you were slaves of sin, back then when we were unsaved, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, you had no connection with it. You couldn't walk into that arena of righteousness whereby any one of us could please God. The slave to obedience, on the other hand, describes the once slave to sin, as verse 20 says, once we are slaves to sin, that has now come to Jesus Christ by faith and has been set free from their slavery to master sin. As we've seen from our previous study, this describes the spirit of the believer that has died to the old self just as Christ died bearing our sins. It is that spirit that is also raised up with Christ, no longer a slave to sin, or as it says in verse 6 and 7, he has died and is freed from sin. That's the spirit of the believer. And instead of being powerless to impurity and lawlessness, the inner man has been freed from sin so that the outer man can walk in righteousness and sanctification or holiness before God. For us as believers, we have been given that spiritual power from God to yield the members of our fleshly bodies to walk according to God's will. We are truly set free because we have the freedom to make that choice with our physical bodies or the members of our physical body. And that's a spiritual power that we did not have before. It is not contrived from within us. It has been given to us By the Spirit of God, this is what it means by God's reigning grace. Christ is now on the throne, and he reigns with his graciousness in our lives. The point again is, sin and grace have no partnership, not in the believer's life. 
Verse 20 again confirms this as Paul reminds the Roman believers that prior to faith in Christ, you were free in regard to righteousness. They were once powerless, we were once powerless to meet the standard of holiness required by the Lord. And the only reason you and I can do the things that please God now is by the Spirit of God that indwells us. It's the only reason we have. It's our power. So first we see the slave's power. Either the slave of sin or the slave of obedience. Now then Paul goes on to show us, secondly, a slave's progress. A slave's progress. This again is a description of both of these two slaveries. Where they are both alike and yet very, very different at the same time. Both slaveries will progress but they will progress in very different directions. Paul gives this description to show a very clear distinction between these two slaveries. And I believe that he does so to serve as a warning to the church or a warning to believers who are still capable, you and I are still capable of indulging the members of our bodies to unrighteousness. So he's going to tell us about slavery to sin. He's going to tell us about slavery to obedience. Both of them will progress. The slave to sin is a bondage to the inward impurities of the heart, which leads him to violate the laws of God, as we've just seen. But this lawlessness, notice, leads to further what? Lawlessness. Lawlessness progresses, or we would say it digresses. We saw this clearly back in chapter 1, when it says those that suppress the truth of the gospel would not honor God for who he is. They did not give thanks to God. And they refused to worship God, choosing to worship the creature instead. So God gave them over. He releases his restraining grace. And they're given over to degrading passions. And as they pursue those degrading passions, God gives them over again to depraved minds. Three times, it is said, God gave them over. He's releasing his restraining grace, and man is becoming more and more immersed in impurity, and hence lawlessness. There is a progressive decline to sin. There is also a progression to righteousness for those who are enslaved to righteousness by faith in Christ. The believer is to yield their members, submit themselves over to obedience to God's righteousness, which leads to sanctification. Again, that word sanctified. In the Greek, hagias, it's where we get the word holiness. We often refer to the believer's sanctification as progressive in that this is what the New Testament continually directs us in regard to our growth in Christ. We are to grow in sanctification, grow in holiness because we have been spiritually empowered by the Holy Spirit to walk in a manner that is worthy of Christ. If we were to say on our own, I am walking in a manner worthy of Christ, we would feel a sense of shame because we know we can't do it. But in Christ we can. And with the spirit that we've been given, we are not only able to, we are instructed by commandment to walk in holiness. Because now we have the ability to do so with the power that has been given to us in Christ Jesus. And we grow in the likeness of Christ. This is what Second Peter chapter 1 was teaching the church. Peter wrote that the believers have been given everything 
necessary for life and godliness in the true knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And with that come all of the promises that declare we've been taken out of this world with all of its lusts, and we are now partakers of the divine nature. You and I are partakers of the glory of God's nature. So what does Peter then say? Grow in that. You have this faith. Let your knowledge, let your sanctification grow in those things. Excellency, those things are given to us in the Spirit. And then Peter goes on to write in the, in the rest of that letter, here are some false doctrines you need to be aware of. Avoid these things. False teachers are out there. And then he concludes, Second Peter, that epistle, with these words. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. It's the glory of God that we're reaching for. The glory of the Savior. The divine nature. We have been made capable to grow and pursue that. What a rich privilege. What a rich power and blessing we've been granted because of the gospel. Now the progression both of sin and righteousness, both of those are taught here in Romans chapter 6, not for the unsaved, but this is instruction that is given to believers Notice the last part of verse 19 is given as instruction to Christians. So now present or yield your members. Who is Paul talking to? Not the slave to sin. He's been talking about the slave to sin. But he's talking to believers. So now present or yield your members. It's because we are no longer spiritually enslaved to sin that we are to exercise our will to walk in righteousness such that we are growing in holiness. Paul simply reminds us of this in describing the unbeliever's slavery to sin. Why remind Christians of this if we are no longer slaves to sin? It is because if we allow the members of our physical bodies to indulge in sinful desires of the flesh, it has the very real potential of progressing to further unrighteousness. And this we know by experience, don't we? Allow a little bit of sin today, and you'll indulge in more tomorrow. Sin will progress. This is what verse 19 is warning us. It's why he's telling us that those in slavery to sin will grow worse and worse and worse. If we as believers... Even though spiritually we've been set free from that bondage of sin, if we indulge our members in a little bit of sin today, we're not going to plateau out. There is no such thing as a believer plateauing out. If you go into kind of neutral position, shifting the gears into N, we're going to slide backwards. We're not going to stay the same. This is the warning for the church. We have been given this power to move ahead, to progress. If we go easy on ourselves, we're going to slide backwards. This is the warning that Paul is giving to the church. Sin leads to more sin unless we exercise the freedom and the power given to us to walk in obedience to the righteousness of Christ. And again, verse 20 confirms this as it is written to believers in describing the time when we were unbelievers and slaves to sin. Paul is telling us about the unbeliever's slavery so that we don't fall back in with our physical members to practicing a little bit of sin today. It will lead to more sin. He said, you were 
free in regard to righteousness back then. Not anymore. We couldn't do righteous things back then, but we are not there any longer. So Paul is warning the church, be careful how you walk your faith. Be diligent, as Peter writes, to pursue this thing of progressive holiness. We have to be diligent about this. And it brings us to a third description Paul gives of the slave. Verse 20 to 21. A slave's produce. There's a slave's power. We see a slave's progress. But there's a slave's produce. What slavery produces. And the word benefit is what communicates to us this idea. Benefit in some of our translations and some of your other translations. It's the word fruit or produce. It means the same thing, but what benefits or what produces what the fruit of it. Both slaveries, Paul says, are productive. They produce something. There's a benefit. There's fruit from it. Slavery to sin produces a life of shame, which ultimately leads to death. Now, as we look at the utter depravity of our present-day culture, even in this nation, the one thing that we do not seem to see in the unsaved world around us is a sense of shame for their sin. They're not ashamed. If anything, we have pride parades for our sin today. We boast of our sin today. And this is a nation that is very arrogantly boasting of many, many gross immoralities before God. If anything, the spirit of our culture is to shame those of us who hold to the righteousness of Christ. They declare shame upon us as Christians. Paul wrote of this to the church in Philippi, and you can turn to Philippians chapter 3 for a moment if you would. Paul wrote of this to the church or the believers in Philippi to encourage those Christians to walk as believers and not like those in the world who oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look carefully at the language here. Philippians 3, verse 17, 18, and 19. Brethren, he writes, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I've told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ and whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Is that not descriptive of our culture today? The shameful things that they are doing, they are glorying in. They are proud of those things. In looking at those ashamed in Romans 6 verse 21, I am somewhat convinced that Paul does not have the shame of the unregenerate in mind here. In fact, he is still writing to believers in verse 21 where he asks the Christian, what fruit came from your lawlessness for which you are now ashamed? The world is not ashamed of what they're doing. They're proud of it. They're ashamed of us. They want to bring shame upon the believer for what we hold to in Christ and his righteousness. So the implication here is that prior to faith in Christ, we sinned without shame just like the rest of the world. That's what Philippians says. We gloried in our shame back then. But now that we know righteousness that is found in God's redeeming grace, we look back at our lives which produced and indulged in those things that are shameful. And now we feel shame for what we did then. That's what Paul is saying here. 
The world knows about our backward glance at how we once lived shamefully. And they mock us for that. And they say, see you Christians, you just add more guilt upon yourselves and all those that are living in a wrong way, in a way that you don't believe in. They even shame us for feeling shame about the way we once lived. We may speak against sin within the church, and as well we should. But the disposition of being ashamed is the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Why do we feel shame for the way we once lived? It's a work of the Spirit that says, that's not how I want you to walk before me. It's Christ saying, no, that's not the right path. I want you on the path of righteousness. Verse 19 has already informed us that these desires are from impurity of the heart and can only lead to progressive lawlessness in people's practice. The unbeliever takes pride in their so-called freedom to indulge in those impurities. But the believer looks back and can clearly see that no good fruit came from that lawless lifestyle. We feel shame for having lived that way. And at the same time, is there not gratitude in our hearts that we have been rescued from that life of shame? A life that could only produce the fruit of shame. Our joy is that we have been set free from that. Just as true when the believer indulges the members of his body to impurities. As a Christian, he is ashamed of what he did as a follower of Christ. We can sin today with our members And tomorrow we're going to feel a sense of shame, and as well we should. And I expect that most of us can recall a shameful moment in your walk of faith where you did something and you say, I'm ashamed of that. I don't even want to mention it to you. The problem emerges within the church when those who call themselves believers return to the very unnatural bondage of their members to unrighteousness. It is unnatural for us to go back there. Because we've been reborn into something else. You take that person that is a Christian, that is dabbling or using their members in unrighteousness, and you put them in a group of faithful believers, or you put them under the teaching of God's word, they will feel a sense of shame for what they're now living in, if they are truly a believer. And there are many Christians or people claiming to be Christians that are living in just that way, calling it Christian liberty. It is never Christian liberty when it's contrary to the law of Christ. We never have the liberty to do that. You cannot read Romans chapter 6 and come to that conclusion because grace and sin don't belong. They don't belong. If they are true believers who may give pretense to being unashamed about their sinful conduct, surround them with Christians, surround them with the word of God, and they'll either feel an inward shame or they don't belong to Christ. For those who do not belong to Christ, they feel no shame before God in violating his law or in what God calls the impurity of their hearts. But this is only true in this life because notice the produce of the slave to sin doesn't stop at shame. He mentions, Paul mentions, the outcome of a life in slavery to sin is death, verse 21. And as we've noted before, this is not specifically a reference to physical death because even the believer is going to experience physical death. But it does let us know that at physical death, there's another death involved here. Paul has in mind the spiritual and the eternal death that will follow. 
This eternal death is a forever separation from all that is Christ, who is the author and the giver of life. We only can know life or the benefits of life through Christ, who is the author of life. So when the unbeliever physically dies, they will experience lifelessness, a death that is entirely void of Christ's life. Unsaved humanity may boast of their lawless indulgences in this life, but the day will come when they leave this world and they stand before the judgment seat of the one who they have rejected. In Mark chapter 8, and you might want to go there, Mark chapter 8 and verse 38, Jesus talked about that day that is coming when all unbelievers are going to stand before his presence. And notice the issue of shame that comes up here. Jesus said, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. In other words, the unbeliever who dies unashamed of his life of impurity and lawlessness will one day stand before the Lord and will know the shame of their sin in his presence. They will know shame. They will most certainly feel the overwhelming shame of God's Son upon them for rejecting that form of gospel teaching that believers are committed to, verse 17. We are gospel believers. We are committed to gospel teaching because it is the gospel that not only cleanses sinners from their shameful conduct, but it enables us to walk in the righteousness of Christ. Those who are ashamed of Christ in this life will experience his shame in the life to come. This, again, is the produce, the fruit that comes from being under the slavery of sin. By contrast, Jesus Christ will look upon those committed themselves to his gospel, living in his righteousness by grace. And as the author of Hebrews said in chapter 2, Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. He's not ashamed. Why? Because we now wear the robe of his righteousness. His righteousness has been imputed to us. And as I've said before, that's not just a covering that God looks upon so that he sees us with approval. It is an imputed righteousness that is practical. And that's what Paul is writing, chapter 6, to tell us. We practice this righteousness. We've been enabled by God's grace, empowered by God to practice this righteousness. And we're reminded of how Paul opened this letter in chap- back in chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. He said, I'm eager to preach this gospel to Jews and Gentiles. Why? Because he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So a significant fruit of our slavery to God and his righteousness is eternal life. Paul was bold to preach the gospel because this meant the same fruit, the same benefit for those that are unsaved, Jew and Gentile alike. Those who would believe they're going to reap this fruit, eternal life. But in reminding the church in Rome of this benefit, Paul is exhorting these believers to understand their freedom in Christ as well as their slavery to him. And with eternal life as the ultimate outcome, They were to keep themselves from the sins of the flesh that are so contrary to our deliverance from sin's bondage and we're to appreciate the glory of being a slave now to his righteousness. In other words, the fruit of holiness. 
sanctification. Why? Why is that such a critical part of the gospel? Because our sanctification is preparing us for eternal life in the presence of the Lord. What do you think eternal life is going to look like? We mentioned this a month or two ago. What is eternal life going to look like? It's not going to be about my glory. It's going to be about the glory of holiness that is Christ. We are now being prepared for that as we walk in his righteousness. The gospel has enabled us to walk in his righteousness. In this life, we are being made ready for the life to come, where forever we will be with the Savior who himself is holy. And this brings us to that well-known verse at the end of the chapter, verse 23, what I've called from wage to gift. Paul has one more thing to say to the church before he moves to the teachings of chapter 7, noting the word for. Verse 23 begins, for. In other words, verse 23 is offered as an explanation for what he's just written in the previous verses. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Two very clearly stated truths are presented here as a summary to the two slaveries that Paul has been teaching us in chapter 6. Sin earns man death. That's one. The second, the free gift of God's grace grants eternal life. This appears to be a statement that has these two truths in it that is meant to draw our attention to the fruit of both masters. It is as if Paul is saying slavery to sin is going to produce nothing but death while the slavery to God results, results in eternal life. And I say this to you knowing that the payment for man's sin is death, but the free gift given by God is eternal life through Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for sinners. Put your faith in him. Do you see the connection he makes here? He's ending this discourse on slaveries with the gospel. He's bringing us back to the cross, showing us this is why the gospel is. This is what it's intended to do. This was its purpose. Throughout the first six chapters of this letter, Paul has been emphasizing, all six chapters, he's been emphasizing two opposing paths for mankind. Going back to chapter 1, those who embrace the truth of God, justified by faith against those who suppress the truth of the gospel in disbelief. We've looked at those under the law versus those under grace. Chapter 5, those born in Adam, those born again in Christ, who is the last Adam. Those under the reign of sin and those under the reign of grace. Chapter 5, verse 21. Then chapter 6, those enslaved to sin and those enslaved to righteousness. Now here in verse 23. It is those who will pay for their sins in eternal judgment against those who have been given freely a gift of eternal life because their sins have been paid for by the Savior. In other words, there are those who will pay, there are those who are going to receive a gift. Paul has shown his readers two differing paths for mankind, and these are the only two that exist. There are no others. He has described these two paths from several different perspectives in the first six chapters. But here in verse 23, he seems to be bringing us back to why this whole letter is written to the church in Rome. A letter that declares the gospel and all of its essential doctrines. 
That's what Romans is rich for, the gospel and its essential doctrines. It's to show us clearly that salvation is not by the works of man, but only by the finished work of God's Son, a salvation that is freely gifted or given to those who come by faith alone and not by the works of man. So why this gospel? What is the gospel supposed to do? The objective of the gospel is about obedience to the righteousness of Christ. We were not there before, but now we are. The Spirit has been set free. It is no longer a slave to sin. So Paul is saying now we have been given the ability in our physical bodies to walk in righteousness. I want to consider then in verse 23 these two aspects, these two truths, beginning with the word wage, which is interesting for Paul to use this word wage, or we can think of in our vernacular, paycheck. The paycheck here is used to describe the path to eternal death It's an interesting choice of words since eternal death is a description of the wrath of God as a judgment against man's sin. We might think it was more fitting to say the punishment for sin is death. But Paul doesn't say that. He says the wage, the paycheck for sin is death. I think Paul intentionally uses a word that defines the earnings of a Roman soldier at the end of the month when he collects his paycheck. That's the word that Paul uses here. The soldier is put in his time for the month or the week or whatever they paid and receives his compensation in coins or money. That money would naturally be used to pay for the essential needs of life. That's how we think of a paycheck. That's the word that Paul uses here. The point behind using the word wage, I believe, is to address how the Jews or any other religious person will view their spiritual efforts because they think they're earning their way. They're paying their way into the kingdom or the afterlife. If they keep the law as a Jew, or they do the law that is written on their hearts as a good person, doing deeds for others, they give money to the church, they're faithful to come to the worship services and give some kind of homage to the God they serve. They're good citizens. It is assumed that this will put to their account, this will add credit to their account and pave the way for a prosperous afterlife. They're earning their way into the kingdom. And that describes man's spiritual or ethical efforts as a wage that entitles them to a future blessing. So as if to say, so long as I do good in this life, I can earn a good afterlife. That is the thought of all religions on the face of the planet today and has been through history except for the gospel. Paul dramatically uses the wording of an unsaved man and lets them know that what they work for in this life will only earn them eternal judgment, death. This is a harsh reality for any who presume to think that their own spiritual efforts are pleasing to God. Outside of Christ, it doesn't matter what good man does. It will only earn them. It's only a paycheck that gets them into eternal damnation. No matter how man serves God or claims to worship God or their God or does what he thinks is good and decent, it's never enough to pay for sin. That's the point of the gospel. And God doesn't leave man in that hopeless state. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And this is where the gift comes in. It's why there's a paycheck On one side of this discussion, and over here, there's a free gift. 
As verse 23 continues, God has prepared the gift of salvation to all who trust in his son, Christ Jesus. In chapter 5, we ran into this term, free gift. Do you remember what it was? As we translate it out of the Greek into the English? It's from the word charis, or grace. This is a grace gift, and I prefer that terminology because in truth, the gospel is not a free gift. It's freely given to us, but it came at a very real cost. Somebody had to work for this gift that was given to us, and we know who that is. It's the Son of God. He came in and did the work. It's not free. He paid the price. I didn't pay it. If anything, it says in Colossians chapter 2, the charges against me, they were nailed to the cross. Somebody else paid the debt. So in a sense, it's not truly free. It is a grace gift. It was given to us freely only because Jesus Christ did the work for us that we would receive that gift. He suffered. He bled. He died to make this gift possible. Our best spiritual efforts could never provide us with salvation and eternal life with God. But this same spiritual provision cost God the life of his son. It meant the humiliation and rejection of the creator God by those he created to worship him, but who rejected him. For our salvation, God did all the work necessary to cleanse us of sin, to forgive us, to declare us justified, and to restore us to fellowship with God. The work, and I emphasize work, of substitutionary atonement not only rescued us from the judgment that our sins had rightfully earned for us, but it rescues us, as we've been seeing in Romans 6, from the enslavement of sin so that we can now walk in righteousness. It is because God's Son willingly set aside his heavenly privileges, took on the form of a slave, a slave to our spiritual needs, and he humbled himself to the point of death, death on a cross, Paul said, Philippians chapter 2, that he made full payment for every one of our sins, the sins of those who put their trust in Christ. More than the gift of salvation being free, this is a gift of grace. God did for us what we did not deserve, we did not earn. It was his work on the cross that paid the wage for our sins. We are going to recognize that this morning as we take the bread and the cup this morning. We don't deserve this gift. It's eternal life. But Christ Jesus does deserve it. He deserved it for us. The gift of life is what the Savior earned for us. It is a grace gift from God. But I want you to notice the last words in verse 23. It's not Jesus our Savior here, is it? He is our, what? Our Lord. Those who put their faith in Christ Jesus are delivered from master sin. And we are now made slaves to God. This is what Paul has said in these last verses. Slave to obedience, yes. Slave to righteousness, absolutely. But ultimately, we're a slave to God. We're a slave to Christ. He now is our Lord. Verse 23 teaches that the two slaveries, they are nothing alike. Man is a slave to sin, but God has presented a free gift, a grace gift, so that we don't have to be slaves to sin any longer. And those of us that are believers today, we know we are no longer that slave to sin. We're a slave to righteousness. We're a slave to Christ and privileged to be so. This morning, our actual conclusion is going to be around the worship of the communion table.
We're going to take the bread and the cup together as believers. And if you are here as a believer, we would invite you to partake with us. But if you're unsure of your salvation or you're not a believer, we would just ask you to respectfully pass on the bread and the cup this morning. But for our thoughts of meditation around the Lord's Supper, around the Lord's table, I want to give you some concluding thoughts just for our meditation. And this focuses on the cross, okay? You can see that in your note sheet. First, the cross saves us to live in the joy, and I emphasize the joy of God's righteousness. The cross saves us to live in the joy of God's righteousness. The very point of chapter 6 has been that grace and sin do not go together. They don't work well together. They are in opposition to one another. God's word does not teach us this to keep us from freedom or the pleasure of sin. Being a slave to God bears the fruit of enjoying where his pleasure is found, which is true joy. There is a momentary lasting pleasure in sin, but it always leads to bitterness and heartache. It always leads to shame, whether in this life or the next. But being a slave to God, a slave to his righteousness, that's where true joy belongs. It's where it's found. So this is what the cross provides us. It saves us so that we can live in the joy of God's righteousness. Second, the cross prepares us to live forever with Christ in his righteousness. The cross prepares us to live forever. Right now, as people under the cross, under the reign of grace, we are being prepared to live forever with Christ in his righteousness. That's why the work of righteousness is so important in the here and now. And why Paul writes Romans 6. It is the importance of walking now in obedience to Christ. This is a progressive work in obedience that leads us to becoming more like Christ, resulting in holiness. Why? Because he is holy. Be holy, Peter said, because Christ is holy. And that's the outcome for us, isn't it? We're going to spend eternity with this holy Christ. The cross prepares us to live forever with Christ in his righteousness. We are even now being made ready for eternity with him. He who began a good work is going to complete that work in the day of Christ Jesus. Why is he doing this progressive work? To prepare us to live forever with him in the joy of his righteousness. And third, the cross promises a work of grace that secures our eternal life with Christ. This is a promise. The cross promises a work of grace that secures our eternal life with Christ. When the gospel speaks of eternal life, it means life with the author and sustainer of life. Eternal death will be an existence that is completely absent of life and is filled with the wrath or the judgment of God for sin, that sin is earned. But the grace of God that Jesus Christ accomplished for us guarantees that we are kept from death and it promises that forever we're going to enjoy the life in paradise that God himself enjoys. We're going to spend eternity with the God of life. Those that reject Christ today are saying, I don't really want anything to do with Jesus. That's exactly what they're going to get. That's what life without Christ is going to be. It's going to be eternal death. And what will be absent there is life, love, and light. The righteousness of God is not there. 
The love of God is not there. The life and vitality that is Christ is not present in that eternal death. That's what the unbeliever has asked for. That's what they're going to get. But it doesn't have to be that way. And the believer that has received Christ has received a promise that God's work of grace secures our eternal life with Christ. Not death, eternal life with Him. Father, as we prepare our hearts now to rejoice and worship You around the communion table, it is a reminder to us that somebody had to work for our salvation. Somebody had to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And that's where we look to You. A God of love for sinners that provided everything necessary to restore, to redeem, to forgive, to cleanse, to purify, and to make us a slave to your righteousness. We're talking about the cross of your son. Pray for your blessing now as together we take the bread and the cup with pictures, the blood sacrifice of your son, pictures, the bodily sacrifice of your son on our behalf. May you be praised in Christ's name. Amen.